the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. Thank you very much, Eamon. Now, time for In Our Defence, where every week on the hard shoulder we explore a court case that made history from the bizarre to the confusing to the unconstitutional. We're going to find out just why these cases have left a lasting legacy and to take us on this journey. I'm joined, as always, by Gavin Dowd. Uh, Gavin, you're welcome back. What are we talking about this week? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Yeah, or is that really the case? We were told it as a child, (laughs) but what does the law say about that? Well, this is a great case to, to kind of explore that issue. So in the 80s, Michael Webb and his son went treasure hunting, I guess you could say. They went uh, searching in an area called Zerina Flan in Tipperary. They passed through a bog and they ended up at the uh, the ruins of uh, an old abbey. And with their metal detector in hand and a trowel in hand, they started digging. The metal detector came out and they struck gold, quite literally. They hit the Zerina Flan hoard, which was a chalice, a stranger and a silver pattern, which was they didn't know at the time, but was actually one of the most significant Christian historical discoveries of the century. Yeah, and you can go and see that in the the National Museum. It is uh, spectacular. I only saw it last year. And we actually have a little clip. We'll take a listen to Michael Webb. This is him discovering, uh, speaking to RTE, talking about the discovery and what he saw. There were colours, beautiful colours, blues and greens and gold and silver. And I don't know how long I was looking down there before it suddenly struck me what I was looking at. Now, I'd seen the Ardar Chalice in the museum years ago, and it just came to me that this was a chalice, and I bent down and I picked it up, and the gold was beautiful. It was still as bright, I suppose, as the day it went down. Yeah, that was Michael Webb uh, discussing, I suppose, that process you, you describe, Gavin, digging it out and what they found. Uh, was it his? Well, that's the ultimate question. Don't I won't want to spoil it too soon. Okay. Uh, but so they found the chalice. They went back home and they contacted an archaeologist and a solicitor, and they got an archaeologist to look over it, and they got a lawyer to draft a letter to the director of National Museum to say, "We think we found something pretty special here. Can you come and take a look at it and tell us if it's worth anything? And if it is, maybe could you compensate us for it since we found it okay. for you?" So they discovered through their research that this might have been worth about five million pounds, which in the 80s was an extraordinary amount of money. And it was an extraordinary piece of history. So the director of the National Museum wrote back and they said, uh, I, I believe the articles you found are really important and you will be honorably treated. Okay. Now, later on, they were offered 10,000 pounds for their find, but they weren't happy with that. And they felt that was uh, not commensurate to the, the find that they have made. So, um, the land was owned by two other men called Mr. O'Brien and Mr. O'Leary. And meanwhile, the state had gone to them and said, we're going to give you £25,000 each and you can transfer us the ownership of the chalice because it's found on your land, so therefore you must own it. And this is part of the issue. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, if you find something on somebody else's land, does the finder own it or does the person who owns the land own it? Well, let's take a little little clip to one of those um, uh, individuals you mentioned, John O'Leary, joint owner of the land. This is what he made of how the discovery happened. I am absolutely enthralled at the find as far as the state is concerned, but it is the aspect of the find, somebody using... uh, metal detector and using a spade and shovel on my property without permission. That is what I'm annoyed at. 
All right, okay, so he's annoyed at that. So you've got the joint owners of the land saying, hold on, this is ours. You've got uh, Michael Webb, uh, who says, well, I found it. You know what I mean? This is mine. I want to be compensated. I assume, do you have the state suggesting, actually, it's none of yours, it's ours? Yeah, the state is saying, basically, um, there's this doctrine called treasure trove, which might have survived the constitution. It was part of UK law before we ratified our constitution, which means that any artefacts found beneath the ground go straight to the state. So the first question the court had to deal with is, does treasure trove still exist in Irish law? Hmm. And they said, no, it doesn't. But we do have aspects of our constitution that say the state is sovereign and the state, uh, all the national resources of the state belong to the state. So therefore, the court says anything, um, any artifacts or historical treasure found underground belong to the state. But then there is this question of finders keepers. And were the uh, Mr. O'Brien and Mr. O'Leary, who you heard there, uh, who own the land, were they actually the owners and were they entitled to transfer ownership to the state? Well, ultimately, the law says if you have something under your land, even if you don't know the existence of it and you own the land, it's yours. And in this case, the finders, Mr. Webb and his son, were actually trespassers because they were allowed to come onto the land. But once they started digging, they had kind of breached the permission or the purpose for which they were on the land. So in any event... Because they were trespassers, they wouldn't have been entitled. To okay, so so so, so so the treasure hunters themselves—they're out now. They're out. They're they're out in their ear. They've lost out. What about O'Leary? Because so, so you mentioned there, the law suggests that everything under his land is his. So I mean, if he's got an oil uh, reserve under his land, he's going to make an awful lot of money. There's no suggestion the state would own that. Uh, uh, but does that not apply if it's a, a kind of an artifact of historical importance or what's the difference there? Yeah, well, the, the difference is, I guess, that the court said it's part of our sovereignty, it's part of our collective history as a people, um, artifacts found underneath the ground. So therefore, under the constitution, it should belong to the state. Now, there's since been another law passed which has clarified that any kind of historical artifacts, provided you can't find the actual owner, and if something is centuries and centuries old, that's going to be virtually impossible, hmm. that they belong to the state. But it wasn't over just yet for Mr. Webb and his okay. son. Because remember earlier on, he'd written to the director of National Natural Muse- National Museum and the director had said, I promise you guys you'll be honor- honorably treated okay. by the state. So they said, well... This we is were- like the version of, you know, when they say if you rear end someone, whatever you do, don't say sorry when you get yeah, out of the never car. Apologize <laughs> never apologise. An admission of liability. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they think the webs are done and dusted and somebody produces a letter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so be careful what you promise, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, because they came into court and they said, well, we were promised by this guy that we were going to get treated honourably and we don't think £10,000 is, is a fair price, given that what we found. And the court ultimately held under a doctrine known as estoppel, won't go into the, the details of that, mm-hmm. but essentially, if someone makes you a promise and you rely on that promise, usually to your detriment, then it's unfair on them to be able to break the promise. So they had been promised that they'd be fairly treated and the court said... Fair enough. You you got to fulfil your promise. So they got twenty five thousand pounds each, which was the the same that as Mister O'Brien and Mister O'Leary got. So everyone got a few quid out of it, and the ultimate upshot was that the law was clarified as to what happens when things are found under the ground. If you find a chalice, the state owns it. If you find oil, you're in clover. Exactly. But another interesting case because the rules are different if you find something on land. Okay. So interesting. because this was buried underland. Yeah. So there's a case in in the 80s in the UK where a guy called Mr. Parker was in a a, a departures lounge, British Airways first class lounge in in Heathrow Airport. And he found a gold bracelet on the ground. And he went up to them and he said, I've just found this. Uh, Can you mind it for me? 
um, or can you see who owns it? Now, they couldn't find the actual owner of it. They mm. tried, and British Airways claimed it as theirs. But then Mr. Parker sued them, and he was successful in suing them. And that's where finders, keepers, losers, weepers kind of does come into it. If there's an object on land, and the person who owns the land hasn't tried to assert their ownership over it or control uh, who has access to that object, then uh, it is possible that uh, the finder might be able to keep it, provided you can't find the actual owner of it. Okay, so again, to go back to the case in front of us, if the Derry Niflan chalice had just been sitting there, you know, on the turf uh, uh, around the ruins, then Michael Webb might have had the, the, the better claim to it. Well, not Maybe not compared to the state, but certainly compared to the landowners. Compared to the landowners, it seems to be the case, yeah. All right. Fascinating stuff. And at least, as, as you say, uh, the upshot was, was a, a bit more clarity in terms of what happens uh, when treasure is dug up uh, on people's land in Ireland. Listen, our legal question of the week, how does someone become a judge? Well, you have to be a barrister or a solicitor. It depends what court you want you're applying for the job in. If it's a lower court, you have to have 10 years experience. If it's a higher court, you have to have 12 years experience. Now, the Constitution says the president selects judges but ultimately the president only acts on the advice of the government so Mm. it's the government's job to pick they refer to a body called the Judicial Appointments Advisory Board who judge candidates based on the basis of their competence and their character and temperament but kind of controversially they don't interview anybody Mm. for the jobs Um, and the the TD and former Minister for Transport Shane Ross has led a a long-standing campaign to, to reform this process. Uh, so it, it is kind of a controversial process, some might say. Uh, but ultimately, the jab, as they're known, is made up of judges, solicitor, barrister, and a number of lay people. All right. Okay. It's amazing you answered that question without suggesting that they immediately go and join Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. It's the first <laughs> thing you do. You want to become a judge. Uh, what are we looking at next week? So next week, if you go into a fast food chain, order yourself a coffee or a tea and happen to spill that upon yourself, scold yourself oh. who's responsible that is a good one I do not know the answer if you don't know the answer either you're going to have to uh, tune in next week Gavin Dowd pleasure as always and we will talk to you again then you can listen back to previous editions of In Our Defence uh, always interesting little stories even if you, you're you not into the legalities of it they're, they're, they're great anecdotes great little historical yarns you can find them all they are on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud stay with us here on the Hard Shoulder we'll have all your business news next 